0: I'm Mariah M, and this is the Black Future Manifesto. What's goody? What is up, faithful returning listeners and new folk? Welcome, welcome, and thanks for tuning in. I told you all that we'll be back with the second episode in March, aka National Women's History Month, and here we are. Today's episode features the lovely, amazing, and comparable Gladys, Washington. Mike and I took a trip down to Winston to visit the Mary Reynolds Babcock Foundation where Ms. Washington is the deputy director and leader of their program team. As deputy director, she supervises grants and program-related investment in 11 Southern states, including regional areas such as the Gulf Coast and the Delta, as the program team lead she steers them in planning and learning public policy and grant making that is relevant to the communities the babcock foundation aims to serve gladys graciously shared her life story and how she came into organizing and freely speaks her mind on the current political and organizing climate, particularly considering the world of philanthropy and funding movement work. I thoroughly enjoyed this interview. So many laughs, so much good energy. I love Ms. Gladys. I low-key asked her to adopt me. No, I asked her to adopt me. (laughs) And I hope you all enjoy the conversation. All right, take a listen. Today we have the lovely Gladys, Micah.
1: Gladys Washington, legend, I can say that, Um, sort of done work as a network officer, as deputy director of the Mary Reynolds Babcock Foundation now, and just somebody who's been a leader in philanthropy and been someone who is, you know, she's she's the kind of person that when people, when you're doing something exciting and new and cool, people say, you need to talk to Miss Gladys. <laughs> and so, has been a, just a mentor to a lot of emerging uh, leaders of color, in particular in the South. Really excited this in your last year of service at the foundation. Just excited to be connecting with you and to connect to all of that history and knowledge and learning. And yeah, and someone who I think is someone who is an elder in the field, but also can tell you what's coming next. And uh, so, looking forward to the, to the conversation.
2: Gladys, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for asking me to be here. I'm honored. Thank you. Right.
0: Who who are you?
2: All right. I am a black woman. Yes. And I was black before I was anything else. Before I had gender or anything else, I was a black woman. I'm sixty-four years old.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I grew up in segregation. And I grew up in two places, basically, O'Cala, Florida. And um, St. Croix in the United States, Virgin Islands. Mm-hmm. And so I had a had a look at what governance of black people means from my, my experience in the Virgin Islands, but I came back to the segregated South. Yeah. And again, I knew what black governance and leadership meant in my community that was segregated and people think segregation was a terrible thing and it was for many reasons, but it wasn't for others. And okay. um, from the perspective of a young black girl, the, the words the two words put together role model was never a part of my vocabulary at all. Um, because every person that we depended on was black in that community. Mm. Everybody. The teachers were black. The grocers were black. The dry cleaner was black. The plumber was black. The lady who sold pies down the street, we all respected and, and revered. Those were the leaders in our communities. Mm. And uh, our schools were black, which meant that, you know, I had teachers who spent time with me in the afternoons to teach me penmanship. Mm-hmm. Who does that except a black teacher? I had to stay after school. You know, I might get hurt, too, by that penmanship. Right. Uh, <laughs> because they wanted us to be the very best that we could be. Mm-hmm. And so segregation, while it was evil, and it disenfranchised our communities in many ways, we had control of those communities in that we supported them. See, as soon as we could go to the mall... Mm-hmm. And go to the white people's schools. That's when our community started changing.
0: Mm.
2: Right? Because we could spend our money somewhere else. And for a community to thrive, money has to turn over 12 times in that community before it leaves.
0: Mm.
2: During segregation, it turned, it turned over 13, 14, 15 times before it left the community. Right? right? But a state in the community is doing segregation. So I am angered by segregation. If our children were not, we were not disenfranchised. If we had investments in those communities that were equal to our taxes, then we would have been okay. But we weren't because of the factors that were larger than and bigger than we were. And so I became a teenage activist
0: mm-hmm. and
2: resisted segregate, uh, de- desegregation in mm-hmm. lots of ways. And back then, the way they did it was that they bused us to white schools.
0: Okay.
1: And so, what it like? What did it mean to be a teenage activist back then? Like, who were the folks that were organizing you all, or, or 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 were there folks organizing you? How was that? What was that experience like?
2: Well, what made us organize was that grown folk wouldn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, the NAACP, um, the leader of the NAACP turned out to be my. <clears> At <throat> many years later, turned out to be. Uh, my sister's father-in-law, and he was an Uncle Tom, and I call them that still. <laughs> Ooh, so um, all right. <laughs> Welcome to the Black <laughs> Shot,
1: Shots fired. Okay. Right.
2: Across the bow. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> <you> yeah. <laughs> um, but we didn't have anybody who advocated for us. They bust us too, and they did this across the board uh, during desegregation. First of all. It was one of the last communities. I mean, we're talking about 1970. Wow. Right? Uh, and it was under federal desegregation orders. Right? So they waited till the last minute. Absolutely the last minute before the feds came down and said, oh, look here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that I wanted to go over to this school. I wanted my school, and I wanted us to stay in our school. I had no control over that. But I went to school every morning that on those bus rides, with signs that said, nigga, go home. You don't belong over here. If a black student and a white student got in a fight, the black student was expelled. Mm. to black kids get in a fight. This is high school, people get in fights. Mm. And so uh, it became untenuous. I had never, I had not pledged allegiance for as long as I was in school. Like, it had no relevance for me. It just didn't. I mean, as long as soon as I could understand what the word said, uh-uh, not standing that's up, not, not that's putting that's hand over, not, 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 not. <laughs> okay. And in high school, I did it, and white folks were not used to black people not pleasantly used to the flag. Mm-hmm. So I go to the office. They sent me to the office every day until I finally just went to the office every day. There was no need to go to the class. <laughs> well, oh, hell, yeah. I'm not standing up. So <laughs> I mean, it just it, it just became a. Part of who I, I, I was to be resistant. But then I figured out, based on a lot of things going on in the ether, activists during my time, that in order to change it, that we had to change it. Right? We lived it. We had to change it. We were not allowed to join, to, be, to apply for National Honor Society. When it was at a crucial time, I was a junior in high school. That was at a crucial time. Right. And one day, it just all boiled over. We staged walkouts, I've listened to, <laughs> y'all ever heard of The Last Poets? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. It's... Well. <laughs> of course. Um, we staged sit-ins <laughs> yeah. in, the, uh, in the cafeteria. We listened to The Last Poets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> all of that. And at one point during the course of the year, it boiled over into violence. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And what I found out at that, at that time, time, after several walkouts and all of that good stuff, that they had been watching who they assumed to be the leaders. I happened to be one of them, and I was arrested that day as a 16-year-old. Mm-hmm. Taken to City of Jail, uh, folk Jail. Right. And uh, my toddler grandmother, my parents uh, died early when I was young, um, and my toddler grandmother in her 70s had never ever been to a jailhouse in her entire life. She mm-hmm. was a domestic. She had to figure out how to get me out of jail. Mm-hmm. And when she came, she said, Baby, I don't understand, but I support you. So we continued to fight outside, because of course we were expelled at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that leadership was, you know, okay, we, they got rid of the ring leaders, maybe school will be calm now. Um, and it was to, to a certain degree, but um, my life was forever changed as a result of that. Um, so it's been a long life, mm-hmm. so you need to stop me now, <laughs> you know, I'm guess- not even out of high school
0: again. <laughs> I am... Um, I'm curious. So, you know, I just I think people have a misconception about how like movement happens and like people decide to like make change and um, how people who were in movement work. It wasn't the majority of black people like that was making those changes and, and making those moves and standing up. So I guess um, one of my questions is, what do you think, how did how you were raised inform that this was something that was non-negotiable for you, even
2: well, at that age? Yeah, a couple of things. One, I had a father who was from St. Croix, mm-hmm. who never, ever allowed me to be in a public space and go to a colored-only anything. Mm-hmm. I couldn't go through a back door. Now, because that was how we had to roll uh, going to white folk businesses, Mm. who would not um, allow me to, if you were thirsty, you carried your backside home and you drank, you did not drink from a colored-only anything. And so you didn't use a colored-only bathroom, you didn't do any of that, Mm -hmm. because culture looked different where he came from. It's black people and brown people being engaged together for generations, along with white people, because Danish people, that's Mm -hmm. what it was, Mm -hmm. right? Colonizers, anyway. (laughs) So his take on that was different. My mother was uneducated, 16-year-old, when she went to New York. She worked in a tie factory during the migration. Uh, She worked in a tie factory in Manhattan and decided there was not enough money for her. So she ran numbers. Just fierce. So Mm -hmm. then when they moved south to Ocala, she decided she was never, ever going to work for a white person again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she started selling insurance for Atlanta Life Insurance Company. That's the Herndon family out of Atlanta. It's a black family. And that's what she did. She was the insurance lady. So she got hooked up every day Mm -hmm. and rolled around the community to collect those little insurance books off the porch with that 25 or 42 cents in it. Mm -hmm. That was what they did. I had, there was no compromise Mm -hmm. in my mind when I came up from that. In a community that cared for me, who had aspirations for me, who thought I was smart, who thought I didn't have a choice except to stand up and speak out. And there were
1: others like me. And even today, young people that are getting involved in movement work, we see it on the news and it seems glamorous and it seems exciting, but folks are paying the cost in terms of not being able to work that part-time job that they need to get the extra money, not being able to focus as much on their studies, getting expelled or kicked out of school in the worst case. Mm-hmm. I mean. So you talk about that, that moment in your life really changed the trajectory of things for you. Mm-hmm. Um, what did that mean for you in terms of the sacrifices that that you sort of made as a result of that action?
2: Well, that was April of my junior year, March, April of my junior year. And I knew that I was going to get expelled. So I withdrew. And when I withdrew, my reasoning for doing that was to get my grades because I knew that they would cancel me out as a human being Mm. from that school system, which turned out to be the right thing. And then I got an expulsion letter and I was expelled from any school in the state of Florida. I had... For serious charges, inciting the riot, interrupting the normal processes of a school they assault and battery, because uh, the principal approached me and approached me poorly, and I hit him. Um, oh, I want no joke. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. Yeah. I just- <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I had that. So we went to, there was a, a, a black private school that was church-based. We went there and they said they do not take white school kickouts. Mm. This is my people. Wow. Said okay. Um, They changed their minds because at the beginning of the next um, school year, because there was a number of us and they saw dollar signs, right? They got kicked out, so they they took us. Mm. Before the end of the semester, they said they had money problems and they were gonna close the school. So here I am, December. Of the following year, I still don't have a high school diploma. Mm. My grandmother went to the school board and asked if they would take me back to school. She was determined I was going to get a high school diploma. And they said yes. But she had to sign basically um, an agreement that said... I would essentially keep my mouth shut and not get in trouble in the White People's School anymore, and they would let me finish school. Mm -hmm. Now, in the meantime, I had all these charges. My wonderful, understanding grandmother with a sixth grade education hired an attorney for me. And the attorney was a black attorney from Miami. Wrong flag. (laughs) From Miami. (laughs) Translation. Right. But you know, back then in yeah, Miami.
1: Miami, yeah. <laughs> the
2: big city. Yeah, 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 the big city. And um, I had a black lawyer in all white, little Keller. Now, that suited me just fine. Right. However, it didn't go well with them white folks. Mm. How dare that, you know what, come from Miami right. and tell us what to do up here. Mm. Right? So, <laughs> it's kind of comical looking back. It wasn't at the time. Um, But he convinced my grandmother to have me plead no law, um, which I did, um, and essentially threw myself on the mercy of the courts and got long-term probation. I had to go and be in a group with truants and ungovernables and white people and just... About three months later, I was running a little group, and they just took me off for a and they said, yeah, she crazy. You know, but, but, but So when I get to, I'll be finished with this part of the story in just a couple seconds. Oh, Lord. Anyway, when I got to the end of supposedly my high school journey, they told me I needed a half credit in American history. This is organized. Let's discourage the black girl. Hmm. Right? So she doesn't get a high-school diploma. But I had some de- a determined village. We didn't have a car, but my parents had a taxi franchise. So they made sure I got to the way other white side of town to get that half credit in American history. And then I said, forget y'all. I'm going to St. Croix mm-hmm. and started my life as an adult. So, yeah, but it, it came at, yeah, a sac- we sacrificed a lot during that time. There was folks that were 17 years old. That was an adult record for them. Mm-hmm. It was not for me, but it was for them. Mm-hmm. And they sacrificed a lot to be a part of that movement. And um, some of them are great people and continue some of that movement work as as older people now in that community, but in different kinds of ways, through their churches and through other kinds of things, but it, it hit us it hit us really hard, the response by the powers that be at the time. So
1: So I, I think that, that experience and the way you describe how that village surrounded you mm-hmm. and and also just that experience of like a black place that was that was governed by and for black people. I just see that so much in your work now. And so I'm wondering about so I'd I'd love to talk to some about sort of how you got back from St. Croix um, to doing work here in, in the U.S., but I really want to get to kind of how all of that, those values and those principles and those, and that fighting spirit really have informed the way that you've approached your work around poverty and around black communities. And So can you just talk a little bit about, about, just kind of quickly, how did you, what was the journey from between there and sort of the work that you've been doing the last uh, couple of decades?
2: Well, I, got, I, I had a child, single mom, undereducated and unemployed. Remember, I only have a high school diploma at this point. Yeah. and at some point went to work. And, of course, I worked all the time, but I had to figure out a way to take care of my kid and myself. And so I came back to the U.S. after yeah, my son's father is from now and all that good stuff. That sounds so pleasant, doesn't it? He's 45 <laughs> years old now. It's all right. That's yeah. <laughs> but, but there was a federal jobs program, and it was called CETA. It mm-hmm. was the initial C-E-T-A. I forgot what it stands for. But at that point, they put low-wealth women to work in prisons. They believed that that was a way to lift the economic ties for them if they went up the ranks in in prisons. And that's what I did. Now, I understood at some point, you know, the scales fell off. Okay, Mm -hmm. you got to remember your values. You got to remember where you come from. This is not the place for you. You're on the wrong side of this. And I now know that I was a part of the struggle and a part of a system that incarcerated most of my people. And I saw that Mm -hmm. firsthand. So I came out, was going to school all along, finished up undergraduate, finished up graduate school. uh, And then um, worked for a community foundation in Charleston, one of the toughest places around race that you can be in. In, in this region for a multiplicity of reasons. The sort of a blatant display of, of the exploitation of people mm-hmm. right there. The um, the systems that say that there is nothing in the middle here. It's all extremes of poverty and, and mm-hmm. of wealth. And, uh, and having worked at a community foundation there, I began to understand what that truly, truly, truly meant and how I could use what I had learned, but use it in philanthropy. I didn't know what philanthropy was prior to that. Mm-hmm. But in grad school, uh, I knew I was not going to be a researcher because I was at the Institute of Public Paths and Policy Studies at the University of Charleston, University of South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I knew I'm not a researcher. You know, I'm, I just no, I'm an activist. Not for me. Mm-hmm. And so decided. So I decided that. Um, That I would work for a foundation that was trying to figure out how community development works as a part of their foci, which a community
1: foundation had not done. So I want to back you up a little bit because I think it's important to kind of your story and your impact. But like, what is philanthropy? I don't know that we talked a ton about it Mm. on the podcast. Like, can you explain? It's a crazy concept, right? (laughs) What what is your version of what philanthropy maybe is more than what it should be? But what what is philanthropy? Yeah. Well, what is
2: it? Is you know, it it's all derived from that Greek word philos and giving and you know, all of that good stuff. That's all I remember about it. <laughs> <laughs> but How it actually shows up is that people decide that they have great wealth and they wish to or they have a little bit of wealth, because philanthropy looks different in a lot of different ways in a lot of different places. But that they want to do good with it. Now, do good is just a big, it's kind of broad and wide and stuff. And it's translated in many ways. Right. And so what they do is that they've created all kinds of laws with the Internal Revenue Service and other kinds of folks to allow folks to give their money away for a tax incentive. Mm. that's simply what it is Mm -hmm. right and to do good so you've got all kinds of philanthropy you've got family philanthropy which is the foundation that i work for is is a family that decided that they had a lot of money and they didn't want to do good and in the case of this foundation it was for the good of humanity Mm -hmm. right that's been translated by family members over time uh, around a set of values Uh, you know there is community foundations. That's where people in communities, all kinds of people, gives it to this institution. The institution makes money. Did I miss that part?
0: They <laughs> make money. <laughs>
2: right. Because it is invested okay. in multiple places, right? Mostly the stock market, and uh, but mostly there. And so there's community philanthropy now where we have lots of black Examples of what community philanthropy looks like now. We are a folk get together. Black right? folks have gotten together and said, look, uh-uh, Native Americans too. Lots of folks have gotten together and said, we care about us. And we're going to use our collective dollars together to support good work in, in communities that we care about. But it is about giving mm-hmm. and supporting whatever a donor chooses to support. And we have it in... All kinds of ways across this country. We have it around conservative issues. We have it around progressive issues. All kinds of uh, philanthropy in, mm-hmm. in in this country. Um, so is that helpful? That was oh, great. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I was just curious, like, how has so you started out in a community foundation and saw. A place that was maybe not doing all that it could have been doing or should have been doing to serve that community but that was connected to that place uh-huh. and then transition was that directly from from there to here or the stop in between
2: no you know my story is not straight line right. <laughs> <It goes very laughs> off the road. that <laughs> um, I left there I, I thought that I wanted to do some teaching too mm-hmm. so I um, began working my PhD at USC mm-hmm. and my first semester it's at USC, of course work at USC, I had this recurrent, recurring nightmare, and Mike will tell you, I had locks. I had long locks, and so this recurring nightmare was, I had long locks, and I had this cup in my hand, and it said, be on my committee please, and professors would shun me like they sh- like people shun uh, homespoken in the street. Mm. They'd be like, head down, and they'd go in the opposite direction, and i say, Lord, you know I'm in the wrong place. Uh, so, this um, a senior program officer came up at Babcock and I had done some consulting work for Babcock and they asked me to come and apply for the job. I left the University of South Carolina with my keys to my little office yes. and came straight on up here to winston <laughs> yeah, That was 20 years ago. 20 years ago. So yes. it wasn't a straight line, but this foundation for me, it met something in my soul. Because I believe this work is has to do with your soul.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Right? And in order for me to honor those who were before me, those who helped me, and those who do this work every day, I had to do my best f- for them in this place. And I had to bring them into the room. Mm-hmm. And bringing them into the room meant that a part of Babcock's work had to match my own personal values, and my sort of mission, if you will, to help our folk and to bring our folk to the table. And so, you know, I met folk who who honored that, like a Gail Williams, for example, who said, yes, that's, that's, that's how it needs to be. So that we went straight to community folk, for the answers. We didn't ask anybody in between and no go-betweens and no gatekeepers and mm. all of that. We avoided that. That is, and, and that is how this role that we've created here at the Babcock Foundation, we're not program officers, we're network officers. We're trying to get to understand communities and understand place and understand the impact of context on the work that people do. Mm-hmm. And to bring Black people mostly because, you know, The South has become something different over the last 15 years or so, but mostly it was just black and it was just white before then. Mm -hmm. And so, again, it was from my own values base that I found an institution that had the same values and was trying to live into its promise. And so it was upon me, I believe, because I always believe that you and you and you and me are... Guided by something that is greater than ourselves, and it's always been that way for me. I'm very clear that it's been that way for me. So I had a responsibility to bring those folks in the room. I also had a responsibility to get some resources to them. If they were right. If they had, if they were doing the kind of work that made made sense for this foundation to support, then we needed to give them the money to do it. And I made sure I did that advocacy from the inside. And the inside outside game is an interesting thing to kind of think about, because you know sometimes it's okay. Well, you know we sitting on all that money. We need to be doing more, but you don't know what the inside game is. Now talk to me, so we can figure <laughs> out what the inside and the outside it out like together. work together. Right. You know what I'm yeah. saying? So it is. It isn't it's an inside game never thought I'd be in the inside game I thought I'd always be mm. on the outside throwing rocks
0: right yeah <laughs> mm. so um are there are there different levels not even levels but different um pathways of funding that the foundation focuses on do you have any particular ones you're like really excited about and like again these are the people that need the money they know they, they're the ones to do the change and make the change.
2: Absolutely. Well, this foundation its mission is to support organizations and networks to help people in place move out of poverty and achieve greater social and economic justice in the South. Mm. I get out of breath every Yeah. <laughs> that was Because yeah. it's a huge mission. Yeah. And so the way we sort of operationalize that mission is that we work at the, the intersections, if you will. Democracy and civic engagement, supported policies and institutions, and economic opportunity. We also, as I said earlier, we also believe that the South is, you know, people clump us uh, from outside of this region. Y'all just from the South. Mm
0: -hmm. Well,
2: there's one South, but there are many Souths inside this one South, Mm -hmm. right? The context looks different. The demographics look different. Governance is very kind of similar, um, but there are, are some some market differences in, in those places. So we look at, we are place-based funders because we take place the way it shows up mm-hmm. to us. We largely support intermediaries. I mean, that's just the truth of the matter. And in, just you explain what best. an intermediary is. Yeah, and, and, um, so there are, you talk about degrees, there mm-hmm. are organizations that are frontline organizations working on the ground. And then there are intermediary organizations that help to support some of that work on the ground, but they move a little differently. They support organizations. They don't necessarily support people. That mm. so, so for
1: instance, you might have a neighborhood association that you're working with or a coalition like, like BYP 100 or like a group like that, that is organizing folks in a community around a particular issue right. or a set of issues. And then you have an organization that's kind of like organizing the organizations. organizations. That's right. Right. And that's like an intermediary, right? That's an
2: intermediary. Absolutely. He did it much better. No, 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 I I built on. You (laughs) you laid the foundation and then I just, yeah. Yeah. So that's what what, um, those intermediary organizations do. I'm really excited about the work we're doing with civic engagement in the South. Is we are supporting organizations, those, uh, uh, many of them that support those frontline organizations to do GOTV work, to do leadership development work in communities. I'll give you an example. We help to support, and this is by, by contribution, not by attribution, because it took a whole lot of folk to do it and a whole lot of foundation money and a whole lot of other kind of money to, to get it done. But yeah. I do believe that us having that focus along with other folks helped for Stacey Abrams to get almost 49% of the vote in Georgia. Mm-hmm. It helped us in, in North Carolina not to pass bad constitutional amendments. Mm-hmm. You know, you're right. One, the, one really bad one got passed, yeah. right? Yeah. But, I, you know, I, I just believe that I'm excited about the fact that it is we are we are at this point when it matters how we show up in communities. Our mm-hmm. votes matter. Our voices matter. If if folks use Babcock support to organize parents in a community so they can go and tell the school board, "You will not treat our little black children like this," then that's a win.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: That's a win. And so I'm excited about you know us all of us getting back to this notion of people standing up in communities and standing up for themselves and their families and their neighbors, that it really, really matters. And we can't ever let this happen again. And we know it happened, Mm -hmm. but we can't ever let it happen again. So people have got to be engaged in their own lives, in their own communities.
1: So you talked earlier about just when you were growing up as a young activist, that there was a tight village of folks that supported you, but the folks that there were a lot of folks that were supposed to support you, they didn't mm-hmm. right whether it was folks that were supposed to be the civil rights leaders, folks that were supposed to be the the community leaders, folks that were supposed to be the religious leaders, maybe that's intentional, right? There's like a legacy of ways that our community, our agency has been undermined, been co-opted, been bought, been bribed, been whatever. How does that show up today in in, in our work are there so those same headwinds and dynamics of this larger infrastructure that's trying to like Cut out the vote, cut out the disenfranchise our communities, and then our the work we have to do to build that power within our
2: communities. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a big question. I'm sorry.
2: Yes, it is. <laughs> Many parts to it. So I'm 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 gonna go back to just one basic thing,
1: and that is
2: that, and, and I'll get. With, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to Black people first. Mm-hmm. Is that we have been taught not to love ourselves.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: We've just been taught that. It shows up in some really interesting and devastating ways. Because it says, and what it said back then to me, is that you don't love yourself, so you don't have the ability to love anybody else. So you will, and we call that her internalized depression, It shows up every day. We do that to ourselves. And I'm mean, just going to tell the truth and shame the devil, as my grandmama used to say. So that's part of the mix. Right. The other part, of course, is institutional, long-standing ways of disenfranchising people, and it takes our soul from us. It does. If if I I knock my if I go run into a wall and I try to get through that wall the same way, and I bump my head ten times, I won't get discouraged. Those systems are designed to do that. Right. And so. Again, this notion of building power is about you getting fed up with bumping your head. You you getting fed up with your child bumping your child's head. You getting fed up that you cannot walk down your street and go to a grocery store because none exists in your communities. We got to get tired. And we got to be, you know, we got to be more tired than Fannie Lou Hamer because it's easy to disguise. Now, you see, the thing about it when... I was coming along with segregation. It was real clear. It was real clear. It's a little muddled now, because you know we're told we need white allies. We need all these folks, the helpers. I say we got to get us together first. As for me, anybody, I don't care. You know, I I do. I just believe that we got to we got to move some things out of the way for ourselves. And I'm not blaming us. I'm just saying there are systems that have helped to create. Some of us that don't trust us, don't believe in us, don't believe in our ability to change our own circumstances or demand that they be changed. And I just think we got to we got to deal with us and then we got to deal with that out there. Sorry, the hands are saying out there. You can't see that in <laughs> podcast. But, uh, I don't know if I answered your question, but that's on my spirit
1: today yeah. for some reason. No, that's it. So talk to me about like, how does that. Show up in your work. What does it mean if you ask people what makes Gladys Washington, you know, the legend and the the person folks go to and the the person in philanthropy that gets this work and that that's the reputation that you have? I'm just being honest. These are facts. This is not me gassing you up. <laughs>
2: Thank
1: you. <laughs> how does that? How do those values and that belief in Black people show up in your work? I guess is the question.
2: Well, uh, you know, I I am um, unapologetic and. What I mean by that is that, I, you know, I show up like I show up. Now, I use double negatives and mixed infinitives or whatever the heck y'all <laughs> call it on purpose mm-hmm. <laughs> because that is who I am. And so the point is, is that in part is that I've never compromised. The whole, I'm the same every day. I'm the same when I'm in the boardroom with the Babcock board. I'm the same with my people all the time. I said something earlier that I yeah, got a little chuckle out of y'all, but it really is true. I just tell the truth and shame the devil because that's what I've been taught. And I'm pretty much a heathen, but that, you know, it comes from Christian tradition, but anyway, but I'm pretty much a heathen. That stuck. That's the only thing that's stuck <laughs> is, is to tell the truth all the time. And don't compromise on what you believe and your values. you got to take your values with you. And if you take your values with them, you stand on those, then folks will you begin to build trust with people in a different sort of way. I hold confidence as well, and there are many young people in this bit in this business who have come to me and I've held their confidence because I'm I've been here a long time. I also have words of wisdom because I've seen so many things. Mm-hmm. I hope that that is helpful to people and have and it has sort of made my reputation, if you will. If it's good, bad, or ugly, you know. If, if people say, "Oh, you know, she just she cusses so much," <laughs> they' are telling the truth. Yes, right. <laughs> yeah, right. Sorry, yeah. but I don't. You know that that doesn't ever change. And I think that um, being consistent, being consistently black all the time, mm. consistently, do, black. consistently yes, black, consistently black, <laughs> showing up for people, having trusting relationships with people, our grantee partners, folks in communities, over time. Sometimes I would go into low F communities, grassroots communities, in rural places around the South, and they would just, people would just be like, mm, no, I had to just go in and say, you know what, I'm a nappy head color girl. Bring it, bring it, let's talk real, yeah. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, through my career, I've had, we've had folks from states to call up here and say, they don't, they didn't want me in a certain place. They wanted somebody white. And Gail Williams said, excuse me? <laughs> white woman, right? And you're, yes, you're, yeah, for your former, first boss here. Yeah, former executive. <laughs> said, excuse me? Okay, so that is a black woman with power. If you don't want her, then you don't want this foundation. Well. That's. And so my reputation sort of grew as as this person who who heard, who listened, who learned, who learned from the people. I don't walk in this in this this work by myself. People in community taught me how to do it. Because mm. I'm a co-learner. You know, I got degrees, but I don't even know what they in no more.
1: <laughs> okay?
2: People in community have taught me, I, I I don't I don't know how to build a house, but I do know how to build a house, because people in the community have taught me how to build a house. Mm. People in in community have taught me how to build advocacy campaigns Mm -hmm. and have taught me how to be an activist. If I had known some of the people that I know now, back in the day when I was over there throwing them rocks, Mm -hmm. I might have been in better shape at the end of the day. But I have learned from those people. Having that respect bought me some respect. And so that's why I think that people sort of like me a little bit.
0: I feel like the word
2: community at this point is almost tossed
0: around as much as diversity, in these like academic circles slash nonprofit circles, and yeah, it's like a buzzword. But like, what does it truly mean to be in community with other people? What does community look like where Black people are taking care of each other? I'm I'm, I'm kind of asking all of us that question, you know, because. Like you said, when you were growing up in segregation, as horrible as it was, it sounds like the community absolutely was still there absolutely. And so it's just okay, segregation isn't happening anymore. But how can we again get that community, that community. Mm-hmm. in the present, mm-hmm. since it was since it was the the sequester that it was during segregation?
2: Yeah, that is the. Uh... Twenty two trillion dollar question. <laughs> That's
1: a very precise number. <laughs>
2: okay. It had to be a lot. <laughs> it had to be a lot. Because I do think you're right. I think that there has been sort of this this overuse and dilution of that term mm-hmm. in lots of ways. And in philanthropic circles for a long time, community meant black. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if you said and community, beautiful. that was that was the other. Right?
0: Mm. But what
2: it meant was black. Mm-hmm. And so I feel you about the, the overuse and, and the pulling apart of that term. I don't know how we get back. I really don't know how we get back. I think that what y'all are doing and what others are doing, that where we care for us, mm-hmm. right? Where we center us. You know, all of the stuff about racial equity, is you did that one? It talks about when it, when folks talk about racial equity. We we do it too. Black Foundation is doing it too. It says we center people of color. I'm back to we got to center us, right? Mm-hmm. So that we get back to. Community And some of you have grown up and have never known it that way before, mm-hmm. right? And so when we begin and when we use our philanthropic resources then in, to help organizations that work in our community, that's bringing community back. When we take our money and invest it in mm-hmm. something in a community, the housing, the investing in a business in a store that sells fresh fruit and vegetables, then we're coming back because there is opportunity there, there's money to be had, but most important importantly it's about the village and us taking care of us. Now we can use motherfuck money. <laughs> no problem yeah we can use yeah yeah, yeah. and we should look. Mm-hmm. but it's not with our hats in our hands this these are this, these are viable opportunities but we've also gotta gotta uh, gotta activate and mobilize around how public dollars get used because our money doesn't stay in our communities they send it to somebody else's community while we walking on grass. Somebody else is walking on a set of sidewalks with, where they live, and we aren't. There are ways to think about
1: how structures get changed
2: that that
1: center us
2: as Black people.
1: To that question about the kind of political, I know a lot of the work that y'all are doing now, supporting folks that are doing get-out-the-vote campaigns and, and and educating people about issues. Okay. Um, there's been this real disconnect between like the big party, Democratic Party apparatus, which is white-led which cares about black folks every two years or four years or whatever the election cycle is, mm-hmm. and then folks on the ground that are actually in community with each other that are organizing around things that they mm-hmm. care about. How are you seeing organizations and, and individuals bridge the gap between that kind of big machine and the and the folks on the ground that actually are the folks that we actually care about and want to see thrive?
2: Yeah, I think that folks are have begun to wake up from that big party machine. One of the experiences I had when I was at University of South Carolina working on my PhD for that first that one semester I worked for Don Fowler and Don Fowler was the he taught at USC but he was chair of the Democratic National Committee at the time and I learned a lot from him and a lot of it he forecasted just this very thing you're talking about, how the Democratic Party, this is the old crotchety white man from South Carolina. Right. But he talked about what changes in demographics would mean, what disconnections would come with the, Democrat, the National Democratic Party and the Democratic National Committee and and all of that. And I think that we just got to rise up and do what we're doing now. And that is taking some of that stuff over, renaming it. Like, two years ago, a bunch of folk. Was scared of talking about things like Medicare for all, but we see a change coming. Now we got to take hold of some of that change um, because it has to be based in community, and that's how you see so many women showing up in in um, in Congress in particular. But they're showing up all over the place. All kinds of folks are showing up all over the place. How do we harness that that power that doesn't Put us in the category of being necessarily democratic I may mean, not you know some of us are socialist and can be socialist and be connected folk doing doing work and and you know I know people who were in the Black Panther Party like um, Landon Williams at the San Francisco Foundation they that's all they did in community was they worked with community and 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 did work in community with with people and so I think we have the opportunity now to to shift some of that. And not be taken for granted. Because at the end of the day, that's what the Democratic Party do. They expect us to be their white horses mm-hmm. in times of trouble. <laughs> I ain't white and I ain't a horse. Right.
1: <laughs> right. right. <laughs> yeah, so you got another thing coming. Yeah. Yeah. So I was just thinking about how we tend to end these these conversations, thinking about imagining a different future. and mm-hmm. you're always like the best at asking those questions. Just gonna well, do thank it.
0: You. <laughs> yeah, just to what yeah, what do you one what do you want to leave folks with? you know, if they didn't hear anything in this conversation, what do you feel like people, the the bare minimum people can do if we're if we're trying to rebuild these communities for ourselves, if we're trying to? support black people and how we need to be supported what are what are we doing what do you feel like we need to be doing
2: well first of all i think we've got to be guided by the force within us that said we must that says that whispers that to everybody has a god force and it is in here and my grandmother used to call it spirit i do too and so it's listening to the spirit because if you listen to the spirit, you will always do right and be right and do it for the right reasons. I think we have to find values again.
0: Mm.
2: Remember those that we, some of us have come from and others that we have learned over time. And again, it's I think it's about centering us, you know, because we are so much of Uh, what's happened is that we could go and be with whoever we love. I ain't mad at them. I got biracial grandchildren. But the point is, is that love yourself first before you love anybody else. That will lead us to doing better with each other and for each other to build the community. And I, I still aspire to the beloved community. And people use that sometimes, overuse it. But I think that when you, like me, grew up in a beloved community. Was it idyllic? Absolutely not. Because nothing is perfect. Mm -hmm. However, I think we can love each other in a beloved way that helps our communities be stronger and our people be stronger and our children to grow up and be the very best that they can be. And so that has nothing to do with work. It has to do with life. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: What do you want, like, if you think about... I imagine you're in a season right now as you're wrapping up your work here where you're just kind of looking back at the impact that you've had and, and, and looking forward to kind of the next generation that's going to kind of carry the torch. What are you? What is the world that you want us to have or that you want my kids, Max and Kai, to have when they're bigger? And, <laughs> and my and, grandkids
2: they have, have, to have Yeah. <laughs> On the grant-making side, you know, I think, uh, again, that people are... F- Uh, particularly black people in more positions of power in philanthropy. We hold a few, and at some point uh, over the last few years, the greatest number of black CEOs at foundations were found in the South. There was not across the country. There was not that many. I want some of these young folks to rise to the top of these foundations to help make decisions about where this money goes and who it goes to. And not to be unfair, but to favor black like people in that mix. Because I want a world where um, your children and my grandchildren have access to opportunity that's fair. I'm not asking anybody to give them anything. They are already smart, right? And that they have choices, that they have choices to do whatever it is they want to do. And that they can make the same money when they're doing something for a Black institution or a Black company or a Black anything, that they have access to opportunities for that, but that they make the same money as any other place. Because we we undervalue our people, both in our nonprofit organizations, we undervalue our people in terms of what companies, uh, the money we make in those places, you know, we a lot of... A lot of our folk make minimum wage. I've met some of the smartest people I know who have made... We need better access to opportunities for for folk. So that's kind of what I want to see.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, one more thing. Yeah.
2: And that they are participants in their own communities and they speak for and with others like them. Mm
0: -hmm. But what do you you want to leave folks with, Micah?
1: Yeah, I think there's just... I just think an incredible opportunity when we really connect to the collective experiences and knowledges that we have, and just really investing in that exchange and that that experience. I mean, there are not just there's not just one Black America. There's so many different experiences Absolutely. that we have in our community across age, across you know immigration status, across you know region of the country you're from, et cetera, and so just. That exchange and those kind of conversations, I think, are incredibly valuable. And we need to invest in them and invest in them more. I'm just thinking, even in my life, like, folks that I need to connect with, particularly some of the elders that I have in my life that I'd like, I'm like, I need to reconnect with some folks (laughs) um, to have some of those conversations.
0: Yeah. And your tip, Gladys, about being unapologetic, like, in your walk as a Black person. I think love for, like, Black people in all of our are is Mm non-negotiable whatever orientation, whatever class situation, mm-hmm. um involvement or experience with the judicial system, with the carceral system, love is not negotiable. Mm-hmm. There's this thing of like a tolerance is okay and a tolerance is not hate. But no, tolerance is not love. That's right. Tolerance is um you're here, I guess, but like rubbing shoulders will make you uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. That's not love. Mm-hmm. And so um I think for me, and also hearing about in terms of building community. You, can, you can't you can build community with people you tolerate necessarily. Mm. You gotta love folks. Yeah, I think I will leave people with that. Thank you so much, Gladys.
2: Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you so Both much. of you.
0: I enjoyed this so much. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Black Future Manifesto. Wow, Gladys Washington. Goals. Living legend. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I learned so much in this conversation. Definitely gonna have to print consistently black on the next iteration of merch. We may low-key have a tagline for the podcast. Consistently black wow with the funds and the phrases thank you again miss gladys washington also want to thank all the staff at the mary reynolds babcock foundation for hosting us to record this episode and making sure we were fed before hitting the road back to durham More thank yous. This episode was made possible by Frontline Solutions, a Black-owned consulting firm that helps organizations on the front lines of change define their goals, execute plans, and evaluate its impact. Quite lit. Thank you to Mr. Groovology for creating the track you hear behind the sound of my voice. He's an amazing artist and producer, obviously this track. You can follow him on Instagram at Mr. Groovology. That's M-R-G-R-O-O-V-O-L-O-G-Y follow the homie again thanks for tuning in you can show your support for the podcast in the following ways one follow us on facebook twitter the gram at black future pod that is b-l-a-c-k-f-u-t-u-r-e-p-o-d follow us bam next two subscribe to the podcast we're currently on apple Podcasts and soundcloud get a little notification we drop a new episode and you'll make me smile wow both of those things are so important three if you're picking up what we're putting down pick up your fingers and write us a review let folks know what you think about the podcast and help grow our listener base you're amazing wow four share us on social media subscribe already told you that but just one more time right and don't forget to tag us when you do handle one more time at b-l-a-c-k-f-u-t-u-r-e-p-o-d all right well that's all I've got so until next time I'm your host Mariah M signing off see ya